thought the job was done. They thought it was all behind them. But sometimes, the past doesn't stay where it belongs. Now, Brad and Andrew must fight to protect all that they've built. The stakes have never been higher. And the beer has never been colder. This year, the epic continues. This is the Brew and View Podcast. Careful, man. There's a beverage here. Yeah. Welcome, everybody, to the Brew and View podcast. Yeah. The podcast that uh, critics are calling getting a little bit too big for its britches. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so, uh, hi, everybody. We're back. Um, uh, day late again, but eh, for good reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're Mr. Brad. I am. You're Andrew. I am. And we are here to give you the goods on some beers and some movies and maybe an interview or so. Uh, why don't we get right to it? What are you drinking, Andrew? Ah, I have been uh, sipping from this uh, almost two pints of the Ocho hmm. from uh, Nola Brewing. It's a, an eighth anniversary ale. Chad Johnson's beer? <laughs> uh, that That'd probably be great. I'd take a sip and have gold teeth afterwards. That'd be awesome. Nice grills. Child, please. Uh, <laughs> Child, please. Yeah. I get wider as I drink it. <laughs> uh, please, child, discontinue that. Um, no, uh, it makes me think of uh, what's his name in Dodgeball? The uh, oh, the Ocho, yeah, yeah. Chad ba- or Jason Bateman. Yeah, right? yeah, uh, Pepper Brooks. <laughs> a bold strategy we'll see how it plays out for them um yeah it's uh the eighth anniversary ale from nola brewing which i uh currently live a block from 
which I'm happy to say. Uh, and it is, I was telling you uh, a little bit ago, it is a sour farmhouse IPA. So it's got a lot going on, uh, hence the uh, large bottle. It's a 8 ABV, which seems appropriate. Um, but all the uh, different flavors kind of they they work together pretty well like no one like oh that's there's a very hoppy profile or oh it has that Belgian that farmhouse flavor to it that kind of citrusy um, or or sour tartness like nothing really outweighs anything else uh, it's uh, dangerously easy to drink uh, part of their funk series which um, I believe is just their bombers that they do Um and I gave it, I really like it, like it a lot. Yeah. Um, crossing yeah. the four threshold on untapped, I gave it a four, two, five. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, solid beer. You got some good brewery or beers right next door to you right there, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I was actually having a discussion with the guy I was at work the other day and a customer was talking to me about, uh, the breweries around here. And he was saying, he was wearing a shirt from a newer brewery, and I was like, oh, how do you like it? Because I hadn't been yet. And he said, oh, you know, it's okay. I like to give them a little while, like six or eight months, to figure it out. And I was like, yeah, I can understand that. Um, but but I thought it was cool. Uh, this is, this is kind of tangential to what we were just talking about. But I thought it was cool that uh, he actually went and he – you know, had some of their beers and he bought a t-shirt just kind of to throw him a little something extra. So even though he wasn't um, blown away by the place, he's still trying to support the local brewery scene. So I thought that was pretty okay. cool. Um, it's a place called Port Orleans. Uh, I'll try and get there and, and hopefully review something from them soon. Um, but in case I don't, they're okay, I guess. So. <laughs> yeah, but um, Nola is about a block away from me. I went there this afternoon, picked this up, got a little lunch, and nice. uh, yeah, good deal. Well, that's Start yeah, that's that's right. a that's a good thing about living in a big city. You get to uh, experience the, you know, the sights and sounds, and you get yeah. uh, the good breweries around there too. So, uh, and I would call that the truth and stay woke because I am <laughs> drinking. The Truth from Flying Dog Brewery, and that is in, I think it's in Maryland. Uh, yeah, Frederick, Maryland, which is uh, probably about 30 miles south of me. It's supposed <clears> to be and this is, I, one thing about Flying Dog, it's, it's a, they got great labels, they got great, uh, uh, great names for beers and stuff, but I never really liked any of the beer they had. Hmm. Um, and this is a Father's Day gift for me, for my wife and my son. And it's the truth. It's a, it's an imperial IPA. It's a double IPA, um, eight point seven percent ABV and an eighty IBU. Uh, so it's you know that happy spot for me. I, this should be the IPA. Uh, I should be known as IPA Brad because that's all I drink. Um, uh, but this <laughs> on the uh, on the label here, I was just reading it. It says uh, because it's called the truth. It says full disclosure. This beer came to fruition because it's. We saw a gap in our por portfolio, <laughs> and we wanted to increase our market share. So uh, I like truth in advertising, and it has a uh, – uh, it looks like an executive-style 
person <laughs> on the front, like rubbing his hands together in a in a manner that suggests that oh, I've now got you in my clenches. And uh, so, anyways, uh, it's a really good beer. It's got some real good. It doesn't have any heavy parts to it that uh, can bring a double or an imperial down, you know, that it makes it a little bit too heavy. Uh, It's got some good fruit flavors in it, and it it goes down smooth, and it is drinkable because I could sit here and drink the rest of the six-pack, but I'm not. I'm going to save it a little bit and maybe send some to certain people. I've been trying to get a six-pack to send to a few people around the country, and it's taken some time, so don't think I forgot about you. Uh, it's just I'm trying to find the right beers for you're, you guys to like. You're a man of taste, and you're curating a fine collection to I am to send forth into the world. Exactly. What does the kink say? I'm a man of uh, uh, a culture. Wait, what is the song? A uh, oh damn it! Uh, the one about uh, fashion. Uh, hmm. I don't know. Uh, it's Bad joke. I'll remember it later. Wait, who is? But this? anyway, who's making the kink? The kinks. Oh, the, kink. the kinks. I thought you said the king. Um, I'm like, I, I don't. No. What about Elvis? This is Elvis. No, this is new to me. <laughs> We're bridging new or uh, covering new ground today. Yes, yes. Elvis. All right. Uh, uh, oh, so well, one thing on a beer front for me mm-hmm. before we go to movies. Uh, we got. I got a brewery in my hometown in Sick. Dillsburg. They just opened up a brewery. Uh, and we went up there for their grand opening and, uh, they have a really good IPA, just a single IPA. Uh, it's called, <laughs> Christ, now I can't even remember it. Um, damn it. But I really liked it. It's, uh, something like a triple B or something like that or, mm, uh, big oh, brand. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't remember it, but I'll, I'll bring it up sometime later on i'll i'll, I'll review it on the yeah, podcast so. for sure nice well that's exciting that's always yeah. good yeah um so before we uh move forward i was talking about on uh mavs this week and i i felt kind of um i didn't want to uh kind of jab i did but i didn't necessarily want to at, at one point uh jab on uh defenseless people um you as you, you, Brad, know, um, if you haven't listened, I went to a brewery on Father's Day, and it was littered with kids. Like, I, I would say three to one children. Um, and uh, we were talking about the, the family-friendly aspect and uh, me being frustrated as a non-kid haver. Uh, like you three to one, did you have Jim with you to, to determine how many kids were there? I, the ratio. I, um, yeah, he, I Skyped him in. I sent him a couple of, uh, pictures, uh, from the field and yeah, he, yeah. he, uh, I don't know. he, borned, we shouldn't even, <laughs> he, Jason yeah. borned it for me. <laughs> yeah. I know that that kid in the corner has had his tetanus shot three months ago. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, I just, uh, you went off was, on was, because it was, was kid-friendly. Yeah, it was kid-friendly, and it was overrun with kids. And, like, I understand that, you know, when you're a parent, there's limited places you go. So I just kind of wanted – because I don't want to just rag on on a, a group of people that are defenseless, especially since I know that you guys at Span the Void can all voice your opinion on that. So I just yep. kind of wanted to see where you weigh in on the on the whole thing. Um. Yeah, on a day like that, and 
a place that calls itself kid friendly. Mm-hmm. Matt Obviously, had a lot of trouble ob- with that phrase. I'm like, it is exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. Well, it. But like, you're 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 going there at your own risk. Yeah. I would say. Okay. And like, and for you, and and I don't like you. Here's what I I think is like parents especially for kid with parents with multiple kids because mm-hmm. i'm very i try to be very attuned to what my kid does I, even though i sometimes you know i try to keep them online and not to do certain things to make people other people uncomfortable mm-hmm. but at the same time i think there can be a desensitivity when you have multiple kids and you're like hey i'm here drinking kids they said yeah. it's kid friendly mm-hmm. i'm gonna take advantage of this and okay. you know it, you can cross a line um but at the same time um, I'm not saying that you were doing this, but like you hear a lot of complaints from people who like, oh, their their kids are are uh, like other kids, other families' kids are crazy and they can't control themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes there's there's a little bit of hyperbole with that. Yeah, and I'm not saying that you're doing that at all. Oh, but, I, I I operate in the hyperbole, yeah, for sure. um but at the same time you're kind of you know midday on a on a father's day i think that's kind of on a little bit on you yeah for that okay well look that's that's my whole thing was i was trying to i was definitely voicing my case but i was trying to say look i understand i don't i don't have kids so i don't know what it's like so um that's kind of what i wanted you to weigh in on but at the same time for you me, were, you were, you were, but you were the thing you, the big thing you were complaining or not complaining about, but you were voicing was that they were running in between like this set of bags that people were throwing, right? People weren't watching their kids. Right. Exactly. And that's, that's what my issue is like kid friendly. Okay. That's fine. Like people have kids. It happens. People want to drink, of course. Um, but if you're drink because not, of their kids, yeah, it, sure. But if you're not going to watch your kids, maybe you waive that right to, Go like it wasn't babysitters. It didn't yeah. say, "Hey, Urban South, we're babysitting." It yeah. said, "We're yeah. kid friendly." And so it's not even so much that it was the kids that they were disruptive. And I think that as a parent, you have to be considerate of your kids. And the thing that I wanted, I just wanted you to weigh in because I'm not a parent, so I want to get you know another perspective on it. But, and there's, but that's the thing is like on a father's day, there's only so many places you can go because you're probably not going to get a babysitter on a father's day. Chances are, and that's, you're supposed to be spending it with your family anyways. Mm -hmm. And if you choose to spend it at the bar, maybe I question your judgment. (laughs) Um, but here's the one thing I did think it was and at the risk of like falling down that rabbit hole of our other podcast Mm -hmm. is that like, um, you, you weren't playing the game of bags. No, that. So you were uncomfortable on the on I, behalf of the people that were playing the bags. I knew what they were like. They were very frustrated. Like, yeah, it was not I can, me I projecting. Can, <laughs> but at that point, if you mm-hmm. see that's happening around you, and I don't know if I would have done it, and I obviously wouldn't have gone up to the parents and say, hey, you know, put a leash on your kid or anything like that. Yeah. At, the, at a certain point, I'm like, forget it. Yeah. I'm not going to play bags. If I want to play bags, and that's another thing, like, I mean, I know that there are places where you can go play bags at a bar, yeah. but bags don't belong in the bar either. Well, I mean, this place is a warehouse, so I understand. I understand. We, I just we've played yeah. bags in a bar together before. Uh, yes, so. that was the first night. Yes, that I've ever seen bags at a bar, and 
and have seen you. Yeah. Weirdly. So. Yeah. There you go. So. Uh, but, so that's yeah, my world. I, I get your point, mm-hmm. and but also I also feel for the people that are in that position where they just want to go out to have a beer. Yeah. And hey, this place is kid friendly, and they got bags, and they got fun games and stuff like that. But also keep a rein on your kids a little bit. Yeah, that's like what it boiled down to for me is like, yeah, I'm gonna voice my opinion. Like like I said, I'll I'll own up to being hyperbolic. I because you know it's more exciting that way. Um, but. But at the end of the day, like just a little fucking consideration. Like that's mm-hmm. what that's that's all that I'm asking. I don't care that your kids are there. I even had like we were um by like there was a pool table and like watching the kids and I was just cracking up. Like they were having a great time. It's not like I hate kids or anything, but it's just like you know, when you've got like three to seven year olds like using bagboards as like a, a ramp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. it. Yeah, if they were playing like with their matchbox cars and stuff on the top of it. But isn't it weird how like people Oh no, take I meant like a physical ramp. Like they would oh, run up they're running up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's funny. But isn't it weird how like you give people an inch and they always they'll take a mile. Like they open up to kid friendly, but yeah. not kid like welcome or you know. Yeah. I you know, it's just like, Hey, you can bring your kids where we only serve alcohol, but we're not gonna you know. Yeah. Yeah, kid friendly. We got babysitters, baby. Hmm. Eh, Throw a ball. Throw a ball pit in there. It'll Mm -hmm. be everything. Will be all right. Yeah, that's. I just wanted to wait because I know I'm. I'm. My perspective is different from the, from a parent's perspective. So I just wanted to weigh in, open up the floor. So yeah. Yeah. Well, if you want to open up the floor, you go on Untapped where you can find us at Brewview Pod, and there we'll talk to you and. Well, you can see what we're drinking and see if you want to, if it's near you, you can find it. Uh, we do have some friends on there. Neil, Neil Orange Peel was drinking some, some more descriptive beers, some more descriptive titles. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dark Dunter from uh, Broughton Ales. Uh, <laughs> uh, we got uh, a lot of Andrew McGuire's. Um, he's an easy living pills from Temptress Brewing from uh, Mr. Neil. David Kyle. Uh, who's a friend uh, through the R2 Pursuits uh, um, chain of, I don't know, podcasting friends. Uh, Azocalypse, which uh, is through Waterfowl Brewing, which is the 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 member of the testing I went to. That's uh, Mr. Yes. Will and all those guys. They, they did that. Um, uh, he also had some stuff from Funk Brewing Company. De- uh, Devin Montgomery, Master Zed, uh, Chernobyl Stout, which I really like that name, mm-hmm. uh, from Tugboat Brewing in, in uh, Oregon. Uh, it's a Russian Imperial. And Mr. Brennan was out camping. It looks like, and he went to the, he's he went to the ground, and he's drinking a ground pounder uh, from Service Brewing Company. So, uh, Jason Keltz, uh, Evil Two. Geyser Goose from Two Roads Brewing. Give it a 3.75. Anyways, get on there. Uh, let us know what you're drinking. Uh, oh, yeah, and uh, Mr. Neal had an old jock ale, <laughs> which sound, sounds a lot worse than Very I'm sure what it was. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, Thank you guys for checking in. Uh, let us know what you're drinking. Um, all the good stuff on Untapped. Yeah, definitely. Nice. Um, and... With that, yeah, I'm pretty. I've got nothing else to say on the uh, beer front. So, sweet. Let's get into movies. All right. Yeah. Uh, I I assigned you a movie. A yeah. Netflix yeah. original, I believe. 
Yeah, you did. Yeah. Hmm. So, uh, to, uh, going to my uh, check-ins, my ratings, uh, Mindhorn from 2000, I think it's 2000, no, it's 2016. It's um, uh, Netflix original. Um, it's an hour and 29 minute comedy uh, uh, directed by Sean Foley, which you may know from not a whole lot. I'm trying to think of some big, but nothing really. Um, <clears throat> it stars uh, Kenneth Branagh, Branagh, Branagh um, Elsie Davis, Andrea uh, Risborough, uh, Steve, Cog- Steve Coogan, who's probably the what, best known a- oh, actor in this. I love Steve Coogan. Yeah, he's pretty good. Um, and the lead character of Julian Barrett as Richard Thorncroft. Um, so this this is a a weird little movie. It had it had hints of hot fuzz for me. Um, mm. Where it delved deep into the uh, well, it takes place on the Isle of Man, off the coast of jolly old England, um, and it. It's a parody spoof mm-hmm. um, type of thing where it opens up with it's like uh, that whole uh, I don't know what even how to call it. It's a uh, yeah, well, it's a parody. I mean, it yeah. opens up with a like a parody show TV show of a guy at like six million dollar or yeah, six million dollar man. Yeah, yeah. Um, it feels like like Knight Rider type. Night Rider, like Six Dollar Million Man, yeah. yes, uh, Hunter, all those like crime shows, Airwolf, um, like all those things where you, uh, this guy is genetically altered or uh, he has a, <laughs> as I replaced by the Russians to read people's thoughts, uh, and this this is where the TV show is based off of, and um, you see that, and then you see what happens to, and it would take took place in the like what early eighties, I think, yeah. <laughs> And um, and then it, and then it, and it flash forwards to present day, and we're talking about a uh, serial killer who has who has uh, fixated himself on the the TV show of uh, Minehorn, um, and uh, I mean, like this movie, there were like there was parts where I was just seething, just like unhappy watching oh, it. I no. was like, oh, this but there was other parts where I found myself just laughing out loud. Okay. And so like I was very I, I was of two minds of this to uh see what I did there. Mm-hmm. Um like I was I was trying to I was trying to wrap my mind around it and like am I missing something? Because there are parts that are funny. Mm-hmm. Um but but it was and they were they were aping different well I really thought they tried to ape the um, uh, uh, hot fuzz. I I thought I thought there's a lot of similarities there. Um, there's a lot of dry British hum- humor, but then there was some also like crass like American humor with it. So like I don't know who they were playing to with this, and like overall, I kind of liked it. I guess it's not. I I don't. There's only certain people I'd recommend this to. Mm. Um, I think I think like a guy like Ryan would like it. Uh, I know Matt would hate it. Jim wouldn't know what was going on. <laughs> and so, like, if you listen to Spanda Void, you know his personalities. <laughs> and there you go. Uh, um, shocking, Jim wouldn't know what's going on. 
Yes. Um, but there was there was some laugh out loud parts of this where mm. there's movies like comedies that I love that I don't laugh out loud that I just like laugh to myself with. But like this movie right. actually made me laugh out loud. So like I I give it that. Mm. Um, what do you think of it? I, I agree with you in the sense that it was imbalanced. Like the pacing was kind of weird because um, I had those laugh out loud moments too. I was never uh, frustrated with the movie necessarily, um, but it, it definitely had a lot of dead spots in it. A lot of spots where um, nothing was really going on or maybe there was just too much plot. Because um, that's kind of the the for me, what I think the danger of, uh, parody movies is, is bogging yourself down with plot. Um, because if you need, if you can't move the plot forward in a funny way and you're committed to the plot, you still have to move the plot forward. Yes. So I, I think that's the trouble that this movie ran into. But for me, I, uh, um, the funny moments definitely outweighed the, um, the lesser moments. So I, I enjoyed myself watching this movie and it was pretty brisk. Um, yeah, it was quick, like hour 40, I think. So, yeah, yeah, actually, no, even shorter than that it was an hour 29. So, Oh geez. Yeah. There you go. So, uh, yeah, I, like I said, <clears throat> I, I gave it a five. Um, really not. Yeah. And, and it's not like a hateful five, but it's a uh, like I will never go back and watch this movie again. Mm. But I also will. There's parts of it that I will rem- remember fondly. <laughs> you know, um, just his awkward interactions. Like I loved him in it. Um, yeah. I don't even like. Where do I know him from? I don't know. He just seems like a stock British British funny guy. Right. So it's probably Neil's I, friend. Yeah. Yeah, they all know each other, right? Yeah, I think so. Right? They're like Canadians. Yeah, uh, I, I, I just, I don't think I, hmm, I, I don't want to sound like I'm tearing it up too much, but it, I guess I am. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not mad that you assigned it to me by any means. Um, I just, I don't know. It, it's a, it's a weird spot for me. I okay. don't know how much I love it. Yeah, no, fair enough. I gave it a seven, so it's not like I I thought it was the end all be all. I thought it was a uh, a a fine middle of the road, not bad, not great. Um, yeah, but I I think that it did have a lot of moments to it. Um, what I, mean, I find funny, like about like satirical humor or mm-hmm. parody humor, I guess, is that like when you can do it like a. And I, I, obviously, I'm going to it because it's a British thing. But I go to, I go to uh, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, mm-hmm. and and at uh, a lesser, lesser, and maybe kind of ap- applicable uh, is Airplane, where there's never a wink and a nod. It's mm-hmm. always played straight. Yeah, you know what I mean. And like they don't, it doesn't seem like the actors are in on the joke, but they do things. As if they were, you know what I mean? Like they, but they always treat it serious. You know what I mean? Where this felt a little winking. I mean, I mean, yeah, it felt like they'd break that fourth wall and, and smile yes. at the camera. Right. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you who, 
one of the I think what is a perfect example of this movie's um, pluses and minuses um, is uh, the character Clive, played by Simon Farnaby. I thought he was so oh. funny. He plays the uh, stand-in, yeah. the stunt double for Mindhorn. Yes. He was so funny for maybe the first like third of the movie as kind of the like um, – <laughs> he becomes like a literal stand-in when uh, Richard Thorncraft, uh, Richard Thorncroft leaves uh, the Isle of Man. He becomes yes. like a literal stand-in and starts. He gets married to uh, his old flame and yep. Um, and until he comes back and then yeah, yeah. And it's so funny as as he plays that role. But when you find out when uh, they kind of overplayed their hands, they uh, with him being um, kind of like menacing in his intentions. And that yeah. with him, like withholding those letters and stuff, I just felt like that was such a letdown because it was such a good, like aloof character. Like he's the stand-in for Mindhorn. So you yes. know, when Richard he's Thorncroft the literal, leaves, yeah. he literally stands in and marries his his old flame. And and then when they they, it's the plot getting in the way of itself. I guess like that's a perfect example for me because he was so great for the first third, maybe first half of the movie. And mm. then when you kind of peel back and reveal his um, his motives, so showing that he's not really actually aloof, but act- actively interfering with um, Richard Thorncroft's attempts to reach out to to his old lover, like uh, it just it's the plot getting in the way of itself. I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself at this point. No, but, yep, no, that's a good yeah. point. I I agree with that. Maybe that's like subconsciously where I kind of tailed mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, uh, like I said, there's only a select few that I would recommend this to, but I think they would enjoy mm-hmm. certain aspects of it. So, yeah. And, uh, I like Steve Coogan a lot. He was, um, <laughs> he almost seems like he doesn't want to be in certain <laughs> things like his, his whole demeanor mm-hmm. and like, I love him, but like, it seemed like he was like. His brow is always furrowed, so yes. I, I, like he just never seems too thrilled. I loved him in a uh, movie that probably either no one saw or anyone who saw hated, but Hamlet too, where he like <laughs> plays a like um, <laughs> high school theater teacher who's trying to uh, resurrect the uh, play Hamlet and make a sequel of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he. <laughs> Um, that's, uh, maybe he's, he probably wouldn't be psyched about it, but that's what I remember Steve Coogan for. Oh, so, there you go. Yeah. Well, uh, from the absurd to the weird. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, you assigned me a movie called Resurrect Dead. Uh, it is the mystery of the Toynbee tiles. Uh, it's from 2011. Uh, and it centers around an urban mystery that unfurls as one man pieces together the surreal meaning of hundreds of cryptic tiled messages that have been appearing in city streets across the U.S. and even South America. Uh, so it was directed by John Foy, who is really, this is his biggest title, not... Not to knock him, but not surprising. Um, that's just, this feels like um, 
Like if a lot of people that worked on this, if this was the only thing they worked on, that would not surprise me because it feels very much like a passion project. Um, it's very, uh, it centers on these uh, tiles. It's a, um, uh, let me pull it up. Toy and Bee's idea. Um, uh, movie 2001. Oh man, I'm trying to find it right now. Uh, resurrect dead on the, pl on the planet Jupiter. Uh, man, I should probably edit this out, but I guarantee you I won't. Hmm. <laughs> so, um, no, not toy and B tiles, new Orleans. All right. So toy and B ideas in movie 2001 resurrect dead on planet Jupiter. These tiles start appearing all over the, um, eastern uh northeastern cities um on the streets and they all have little messages underneath which actually um one of the things that i didn't like about the movie is that they like they had not that it was generic it's a very strange uh statement in the first for sure um thought-provoking in its own right but they would have these little tiles underneath that were a little more specific yeah. Um, and I feel like those maybe should have been more of the focus. Um, right. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Like those. But there's. A... <coughs> Sorry. Mm -hmm. <coughs> oh, Sorry. No. But. Yeah. Right. But the overall theme, I'd say, would be the Toynbee idea. Right. Yes. You know, the, the main the main crux of it because that was the overall this maybe it was like the placard or something of the uh you know hey this is this and then here's some subtext to that yeah. here's another crazy thought i had right yeah and that definitely could be the case um it but it basically seemed like someone or a group of people were tiling their manifesto onto the streets from like the mid 80s to the early 2000s and uh it's centers around um justin who uh is not unhealthily obsessed but fully committed to figuring this out yes <laughs> um he, he wants to figure out the meaning of these toy and b tiles and so he actually gets together a team of junior detectives i don't like I don't Hipster know how, detectives. Yeah, I don't know how to say it without sounding condescending, but it is. What it's it is. A, it's a ragtag group of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a like do-gooders. Yeah, it's who like, are interested in solving mysteries, which I didn't know that existed in the two thousands anymore. Like I, <laughs> I thought that went away in like yeah, you know, instead the, of the, the beginning League. of the Cold War era. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Instead of the Justice League, it's it's the Just Us League. Yeah, it's just us. Um, and we're, we're in a league of our own, fella. Mm -hmm. um, but it's uh, well-crafted, for sure. I really uh, enjoyed this documentary. Um, it, is, it is a bunch of do-gooders trying to piece together the mist. Like, they become enamored with these Toyn B tiles. And um, what's what's interesting too is uh, people talk about they talk about how they've just been there, and 
like so many people just walk past him on a daily basis. Like it's part of your everyday minutia. But this guy, Justin, is uh, working a job, I, I think, um, kind of like a bicycle delivery. And uh, he is coming across these on a regular basis. And he is starting to piece them together and starts to take notes on like, hey, where are these? you know, these are located here, here, and here. And like, he kind of sees, uh, through the minutia of the everyday and starts to kind of un- unravel this mystery around these tiles. And, uh, it takes him to all sorts of interesting places like a shortwave radio convention, which exists. And, uh, that's like, that's pre-internet. <laughs> That's like internet yes. before. Oh internet. yeah, all this stuff is pre-internet. But but I mean, the shortwave radio convention that was probably in the early mid right. 2000s that he went to it. So they were not going quietly into the night. No, they will not be silenced. These shortwave radio. Well, they're they're the pre-internet, and they will be the post-internet. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, probably true. Um, <laughs> that's a scary thing to think about. Yeah, uh, but. Yeah, so these guys, uh, they they meet all these people along the way. They they're going to these neighborhoods, like um, looking up and and being in, uh, interested in trying to reach out and contact this bird man, um, and and just it is a really compelling mystery of just how it's a great example of how uh, the truth is stranger than fiction, and. Uh, they are trying to uncover the the meaning behind these toy and bee tiles. And uh, I don't want to spoil how they figured out, but I, I was a part of me was disappointed that they were able to put it together so cohesively. Yeah. The mystery itself. Because like like I I was fascinated by like who put these there and, and it's kind of the things that you wonder and you want to know. And then once you know, you realize, Oh, I, I didn't want to know that. No, I kind of, I, I was kind of wrapped up in the mystery and the, the shadowiness and, and the conspiracy theorist and, and all that fun stuff. But it's still, it's a interesting journey. It's, um, really compelling. Like it's, uh, under an hour and a half and from the, so it's under an hour and a half, so it doesn't get long-winded or ever. And I feel like it never wastes time. From the uh, opening sequence, I was pretty thoroughly invested in this. And then you kind of start to um, understand as you get more of the narrative, um, just become more and more invested. Uh, but they did such a good job. Uh, I gave it an 8 out of 10. Good. Um, really liked it. Uh Definitely going to recommend it, and especially like um, being a fan of movies, and like we've talked about Room Two Thirty Seven numerous times on here. Uh, obviously, it's fun to ha- to kind of play with those conspiracy theories surrounding Kubrick and all that. Um, always interesting. Um, but we were talking about Thin Blue Line last week. Yeah, and I want that's yeah, I wanted yeah. to wrap everything up with that. Yeah, and so this did a good job of they did obviously do maybe it wasn't obviously. Um but since you assigned this to me with that 
uh, on the heels of the Thin Blue Line, I was kind of maybe more looking out for that reenacting and stuff like that. And they just, they utilize that so much better. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, and and it just like shows with, how much Thin Blue Line has aged. Yes. And it, with, with the, uh, the comic style reenactment, uh, you know, the panel, the panel style reenactment of th- certain uh, things they were talking about, like done effectively. Mm-hmm. And like, so like for me, like a documentary like this, this really doesn't deserve anything other than a very long, like maybe a uh, 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 piece in a newspaper yeah. or a blog post or something to that effect where it's an interesting story and it, you can tell the story succinctly, but that's why like a movie like this and let's not kid ourselves. Movies are made to manipulate the audience and to feel something right. Yeah. So this movie does a great job of making you feel something about a trivial and weird little thing, you know, where a, a, a movie like thin blue line for me, it was, it has so much more cultural significance mm-hmm. and like, and things that echo to today, you know, 30 years later, uh, from an event that happened 40 years ago. And it, it doesn't, it didn't have the same impact because the storytelling wasn't there. Right. And, and this is a, an example of why, um, in maybe, maybe it is time and maybe it is the way, um, it, it, the documentary style has evolved over that time and makes it, um, makes it, it, it just makes the story more important when you get invested because of the storytelling. And I, I thought that this is a, and it, it actually played out better than I even thought because I had, I hadn't seen this movie probably four or five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I rewatched it this week and I was like, oh yeah, that that's why I like this one so much better than I like the thin blue line. Yeah. Because of the storytelling elements of it. Yeah. They understand how to, um, I, yeah. Manipulate is kind of a harsh word cause it's always, it always has a negative connotation to it, but they understand how to, um, manipulate perspective and, and siphon, uh, the facts in so that you're getting them in a nice digestible sequence and they're not doing the, the panel to panel and constant recreations. They're doing recreations, but they flow kind of so seamlessly, especially when you're, um, countering it to thin blue line. So, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely well-crafted. And like you said, like something like thin blue line has, you know, cultural impact and, and, uh, that's, you know, a problem that we're, um, almost inundated with today with, um, police and their questionable at best behavior. Um, and this is about some guy who might've just been off his rocker, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's told in a more compelling way. So it's, um, yeah, I'm more likely to recommend this. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. No, it is what it is. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm glad you liked it. Um, I was happy to watch it again, too, just to talk about it because it was, it, it, yeah. And you don't want to spoil it because, like, I this is a highly recommendable movie for me. Like, you can get sucked into this kind of thing so easily. And actually, this is because I listened to 
uh, our guest later on in this episode, uh, he recommended this movie on his various podcasts. And I was like, well, I'll check it out. And happy that I did. Nice. Nice, nice. Well, I've looked up and there are Toy and B tiles in New Orleans and Chicago, so I'm going to try and track those down. In the next I'm very, months. very jealous of that. Yeah. Hopefully I can find the one. Uh, I feel like I have a better chance of finding the one in Chicago because New Orleans just gets so frequently ravaged by nature. Yeah, so. yeah. But I feel like maybe the streets, streets don't, get quite as pa- paved quite as often in New Orleans. Oh, well, I can attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I, you know, I'll check them. I'll uh, post them to our Twitter, which is BruinViewPod, at BruinViewPod on Twitter. So there you go. Good. That'd yeah, be awesome. If I track them down, I will I'm be sure to, see to share. Noise, noise. Uh, so. Um, Resurrect Dead, by the way, is on Amazon Prime, and Mindhorn is on Netflix. Uh, well, I, I think it's time, it's only appropriate, that mm-hmm. we assign each other some movies for next week. You bet. Uh, I am on a dock kick, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to sound, or sound, of course I, I'm going to sound you. Gonna I'm going <laughs> to assign. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> you sound city uh i think it's is it directed by dave Grohl? i believe so uh, yeah as dave Grohl. yes um uh it, the it's it's about this the studio in uh what is it van nuys uh california and the uh different acts and uh groups and just the info all the voices that came through this uh this studio in uh van nuys uh and i i've heard they actually um dave Grohl produced an album called sound city which had a lot of collaboration between old and new uh and there's a couple good songs on there i really like and uh I'm, I'm, I, I haven't seen this, so I'm, I'm anxious to watch it. I know you're a big music guy, and hopefully you will enjoy it. Yeah, I, uh, I am looking forward to it. So uh, it's streaming on Amazon right now. Sick. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so for you, I've got from uh, this very year that we're in right now, uh, Mr. Brad Pitt doing, uh, doing a Netflix exclusive called War Machine. Yeah. Um, so let's let's see what he can do. Uh, yeah, I think it's based on a true story. Yeah. Uh, probably loosely. I'm guessing there's going to be some humor in it, but yeah, it's one of those ones that keeps popping up on Netflix. Hey, yeah. hey, this is our original. Hey, this is our original. Exactly. Yeah. Here we did an original movie. Come on, guys, watch it. It's got Brad Pitt. Yeah. Hey, we got Brad Pitt. Hey, it works because you're gonna watch it. Yeah. I'm not. No chance in hell. Just kidding. <laughs> But yeah, it, it definitely you get um, you get uh, a face full of it every time you log on to Netflix. But uh, I'm curious uh, because you know the pulling Brad Pitt Brad Pitt is a big name, and he obviously has done some uh, quality war movies. So we'll see if he can keep that streak alive. Yeah, per. Um, 
Uh, for the listeners, I was going to send this to you last week before I got der- derailed with the uh, the whole uh, documentary thing. But a uh, movie from earlier – my God, I, I should have had it up. 93. 93. Fire in the Sky uh, about alien abduction. Um, and it is disturbing at times and uh, weird. I don't know how it holds up. I'm going to try to get to it this week just to – uh, go along with you, but uh, it's a it's an interesting, interesting movie uh, that I I remember remember fondly. So check that out on Amazon. Uh, Fire in the sky. Nice uh, on Netflix. Also taking it back a little bit from 1999, the animated adventure, The Iron Giant. Um, oh yeah, good one. Yeah, good uh, quality. Um, what is it? Superman? He's a kind of an allegory for Superman, which yeah. is weird because Superman's kind of an allegory for Jesus, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, this is a quality Vin Diesel performance, so you got to <laughs> take those when you can get them. Yeah. No, uh, The Iron Giant, cool uh, animated movie. Um, I remember it fondly. I've probably saw it mm, pretty recently. I, I would say within the last five years, which... You know, I was still an adult then, so I can say. Decent, yeah, I, decent it's been a while movie. since I saw this. Hey, well, I mean, that's why you have kids, right? So you can revisit old Oh, you know what? That's, that's a great point. We're going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do it. Good. Excelente. All right. So um, next week we're going to be reviewing Sound City uh, from 2013, which is on Amazon Prime. And War Machine from 2017 on Netflix. And just uh, once again, our senior recommendations, Fire in the Sky uh, from 1993 on Amazon Prime and The Iron Giant from 99 on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, One movie that I want to talk about just briefly that I'm going to be probably, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, It's called The Anarchist cookbook is that right anarchist anarchist uh anarchist damn it i had it's about the guy who wrote the anarchist cookbook. yes yes uh damn it i had that all planned out and then i lost the title and i'm (laughs) struggling for it um anyways yeah that's something that um it's basically it's it's the guy, the guy that wrote the anarchist cookbook who has, uh, people have quoted and used, uh, uh, tools of destruction, mm-hmm. um, over the years. He wrote it at 19 and now he's 65 and they tell his story mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm interested to see that. And I will try to find that before we sign off here. But, uh, recently uh, movies, Recommend a movie. He died this year, last year. Uh, yeah, yeah, he died recently. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, oh, oh, uh, American Anarchist. Mm, okay. Yeah, American Anarchist on Amazon. Um, sorry about that. Uh, preparation is key, and keys. I've lost mine. So there you go. But anyways, uh, I guess without further ado, yeah. And I guess 
I guess to say, uh, do a quote that I guess would would end the show, but is going to continue the show is <laughs> we're not that show. All right, so we are very excited uh, this afternoon to uh, Mr. Brad and myself are joined by Anderson Cowan, who uh, is a uh, podcasting favorite of ours and recently uh, completed shooting his first feature film. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Hi, guys. What's up? Hey, Anderson. Up, fellas? Mr. Brad, Mr. Andrew, how are you? Great, man. Great. Great to have you on. Fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah we're, we're excited to talk to you just because we're like uber super fans and but also because you did your first you did your what you've been dreaming about forever you've talked about it on your podcast it's like the the thing that every day you're waking up and why aren't i doing this yeah. i think is one of the things you've always said yeah that's that's the thing if you if you have lofty aspirations uh you're pretty easily disappointed with yourself and uh you know i wanted to make a feature film for more than half my life now and every single day that uh, I wasn't getting any closer to that I felt like a loser and it made me you know drink more and uh, hate myself a little bit more but uh, now that that's uh, behind me it, it's it's a great feeling to uh, finally accomplish even if the movie is absolute shite uh, at least I did it you yeah. know and then I can move on but I mean that's one thing but you got a chance to, and you did the way you did it you did it through uh, uh, a lot of you did through a lot of people you know as far as helping you out with I think your DP is a friend of yours, yeah. um, and you did it through uh, some, some crowdfunding, but with a lot of your own money as well. Um, so, like when you now now that you did it, like you can say that you did it, you did it on your own. With I with did it my way, of, yeah, yeah. And uh, like, so is that how much? How important is that? Like, instead of doing like going and like directing directing like a TV show or something, because you're out there in that world, like not in the world, but like you're around that type of stuff like how important was it for you to do it with doing it your way like honestly you unfortunately i i have i'm i'm really good at putting my foot in my mouth and not making good impressions with people i'm really bad at selling myself schmoozing r rubbing elbows i i live here in la i'm born and raised here in la and i i just get uncomfortable and i dislike most people that work in the movie business especially if you like meet them in a bar or something and the first thing they say is yeah i produce movies it's like shut up uh <laughs> <laughs> There's so many people out here that, you know, come from all over the world, really, uh, to say that they are in the movie business. And I think that they lead with that. And they'd rather say they're in the movie business than actually be in the movie business. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Like, they'd rather uh, drive a Mercedes that looks great on the outside and they don't give a shit if it's, you know, nice on the inside. It's it's all about the stature yeah. that comes with, with that. And I... I'm I'm a little bit jaded and probably unfair, but that's always the first thing in my mind when I meet these people that uh, make movies. I love movies, but I hate most people that make them, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm I'm a terrible salesman, especially of myself. So I didn't really have much of a choice. If I was if I was smoother and smarter, I probably would have gotten a movie funded, you know, maybe a number of years ago. But then I would have had to make you know um, like a truncated version or a uh, compromised version of what I wanted to make. I don't know how easy it would have been to get groupers uh, funded with the subject matter being so, I, I guess, out outrageous is the, is the word or mm -hmm. uh, edgy is uh, is a hot topic <laughs> is a good word I guess. <laughs> so edgy. Yeah. yeah, it's very edgy. <laughs> well, like out of out of like you, I know you have a bunch of scripts that you've written, like whether it's four shorts or four features and stuff like that is this the movie like is this the one you wanted to do with that kind of with your like your the the first movie you wanted to do with your all your scripts or is the one that was most feasible as far as 
uh, as far as money goes and yeah. being a first time. Uh, yeah, it was. It's the latter for sure. Uh, I have a couple other scripts that I think would be much more palatable and uh, have much more uh, reach and possible success for you know finding an audience. Uh, but they're much more expensive. This is the first one that I dreamt up that uh, is cheap. I mean, eighty percent of it takes place at the bottom of an empty pool at an abandoned house, and uh, that's a cheap movie with you know like three main characters. Uh, other characters come in. We have like nine by the time everything's said and done. But uh, I just, I don't know. Have you guys ever written anything? Um, sort of. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just like small, like five page sketch comedy it, stuff. Yeah. And it sounds, it sounds corny, but like, it, it like, you know, ideas just kind of come to you, right? Yeah, like absolutely. it picked you. It's not like you go out and it's never, I'd never sat down and said, all right, I'm going to write something super cheap. And yeah. I never thought that I just think of, you know, stories or things that I would like to see on the big screen that I've never seen before. Sometimes it starts just with like one, uh, scenario that, you know, yeah, two characters are in you. and then I build everything around that. And that was what was going on with this one. And it was like my, uh, it was my fourth feature script that I was in the process of completing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's, and I was, I think I said it in my little video, like I was on page 30 when I'm like, holy, holy shit, this is like cheap. This is the first really cheap hmm. movie I've ever written. Hmm. I think I might be able to raise enough money to be able to actually do this thing. Yeah. Nice. Uh, how long did it take you to write your uh, first draft? Uh, longer than it should have. I was still mm-hmm. working, uh, you know, kind of partial, kind of full time with Loveline and doing the other shows and whatnot. Sure. Uh, probably took me about nine months. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite script that I've, I've ever written actually took two months to write. Uh, so that. That doesn't. I, it's hard to quantify, like, figure out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's in the way, stuff like that. Of course. Um, I got you. And, yeah, and but uh, you know, I was pecking away at it pretty much every single night. I'd go to a bar and I'd write uh, some more scenes, and then sometimes I'd think of something else that would have to completely rework everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think. Not to say that I didn't like it, but also once I realized that it was cheap enough to actually make and I realized that the words that I was writing down weren't just for me, but they were probably going to actually be produced onto the screen. Yeah. It made it, I kind of got intimidated by that. And I, I wanted to try and make things a little bit more perfect, mm. uh, which is always that's that's a, a bad habit to get in. You should just, you know, write what you're feeling and, and what you want to see on the screen. You should never be thinking about other people, I don't think. Yeah, absolutely. But once I realized it was going to be reality, I started to kind of nitpick uh, a little bit more than I would <laughs> yeah, during yeah. the first draft. I mean, there's plenty of room for that with the second, third, you know, fourth draft. I probably mm-hmm. did five drafts of this in total, if not more. Oh, wow. Uh, but I, 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 every now and again, you see a movie or you see, it depends on what your art form is. But mm-hmm. uh, that sounded douchey when I said that. But it <laughs> depends on, on what your skill set is or whatever you're into. And I fell in love with this movie called Buzzard. Uh, which is on uh, was on Amazon Prime for the longest time. It's a really small movie, but it I saw that in the middle of writing uh, Groupers and kind of during the time where I was freaking out a little bit and mm-hmm. feeling like everything had to be perfect. And I loved Buzzard so much, and it's so loose and it plays so loose, and there's so much improv and there's so much shit that's just kind of strung together, but it works. It made it really freed me up, and it made me realize, dude, you're not making an Academy you know, a quality film here. You're not making a movie that's going to find a giant audience. You're just making a, your first movie. Just, you know, do it and have fun with it and make sure that you're, you stay true to yourself with it. So, well, so like, so as, and this is kind of jumping forward a little bit, but like, as you're, as you're filming everything, how many times did you have to rework stuff during the filming of it to then like do another draft, I guess, of the script, I guess that. Oh, that no, 
We had that's luxury, man. We had no time for that. I had uh, we shot this thing in 14 days. Probably should have had at least 30, if not 45 days, to shoot it. But we shot it all in 14 days. And once, uh, you know, day one struck, uh, there was no rewriting. There was no uh, no reworking the story or anything like that. I had done all my rehearsals with my actors for hours, days with them. Uh, just to try and, you know, make sure that I got the most out of them during the limited time we had on set. But, yeah, you hear stories about, like, Coppola on the set of uh, Apocalypse Now being, you know, rewriting scenes the night before. And I, we we didn't have any of that luxury. And there was times where, like, you know, like, the actor would give me some shit on the day of, like, this line doesn't really feel, you know, right. And I'm thinking, well, why didn't that come up during our rehearsals? But... <laughs> Then I'll, you know, I'll let them rewrite it, uh, you know, just a line by line basis, but nothing major. Well, okay. So like, uh, well, does it, I guess that makes, I'm trying to think of like the things that <clears throat> like you get on the first day of shooting, then like you're, you've done a, a number of shorts. Like I, how many shorts have you done? Like eight or nine shorts or something like that? I think 10 now. 10 okay. Or and so like the difference between the first day of shooting on a short and, and the first day of shooting on this like how how jacked up were you like uh, like what was the feeling when you walked on the set the first day and that you're you're in it now and you're like ob- like what what was that like for you like how how did that how did that wash I, I it's one of my regrets i didn't really let it wash over me and i didn't really like you know take take it in to consideration i don't think at the time i was just and i i guess panic mode even though i think that uh, i kept a lot of that internal and people you know numerous times throughout the shoot said that i seemed really chill and i was like one of the most mellow directors that i ever worked with which i never thought i'd hear anyone say about me but <laughs> i was just you know like really in my head thinking because if if we lose half a day we're fucked like it, it was one of those shoots and we had rain issues and the whole thing for the most part takes place outside in a pool and the pool was filling it up with water two days before the shoot. We lost our prep day where we were supposed to be able to, you know, spray paint the, the pool. Uh, so I was just in like, go, go, go panic, panic, make sure that we get everything, make sure I can do everything in my power to make sure that we get what we need rather than, Oh, this is awesome. I'm finally fulfilling a lifelong dream walking onto my set. It was just like, Oh shit. And then, you know, we have, you know, there's some issues that I had with, uh, I'm not naming names, but, you know, you get some personalities and egos, uh, not with the cast, but with uh, with the crew. I, I, had, I had an issue with uh, one person in particular, and that became a whole headache, and I had to become like a psychologist while I was trying to direct this thing for some time. Those kinds of things uh, distract you from the uh, glory that should have been um, actually doing this, you know. I, I guess for the, for people that are just listening to this yeah. guy they've never heard of wax on about, uh, you know, fulfilling his lifelong dream. I, I yeah. guess may, maybe I should just say real quick in a nutshell what the the the, the absurdity of the, uh, the the movie what it, what it's about, and uh, it's just about homophobia and uh, the the story is uh, this young girl, sexy girl, because uh, that's always how I imagined her in my head, but she's a badass and she's a rough and tumble. Uh, grad student she uh, she captures these two young boys who are like we find out later are high school seniors uh, that are known homophobes that have been torturing her little brother uh, for years in high school uh, calling him a fag and telling him that you know homosexuality is a choice and uh, long story short she roughs them up overpowers them strings them up together at the bottom of this empty pool and in this, in this ab- abandoned house in this abandoned neighborhood 
and she strings them together so that they're bound together facing one another and she tells them that uh, they get to prove their little theory that homosexuality is nothing but a choice and she's not going to let them go until they prove that they can be gay for each other and that's <laughs> that's pretty much the story and that's the jumping off point and obviously a lot of other things happen around that otherwise it would just be a short but uh yeah that's that's it so like when you yeah obviously like that's something it's that would be hard to like pitch around to studios and stuff like that so you i would went, think so yeah yeah I would think that'd, be, that'd be tough <laughs> and like, as, a, as a first time like feature film director like you it you can't do that uh or you it, you'd have a hard time doing it you'd be you'd be waiting a while so you decided to go the fun the the crowdfunding route you went through uh seed and spark which it's like after i got on it um to look up like your your the campaign that you were doing and stuff it they it was a really cool uh community there with that i yeah like i i I, I found myself like falling down rabbit holes and stuff just looking at different projects and stuff and i i I think that's a real good uh not a proving ground but like a a nice uh uh i hate this word but like a safe space for that kind of uh an outlet to to bring people together, I guess, a community more than anything else. So, um, uh, rather than like GoFundMe and that kind of stuff, which I think other people have taken advantage of, um, uh, you know, like, uh, who's the guy? Um, Oh, well, yes, yes, yes. Like that kind of thing, like where you have a proven name, like it kind of takes advantage of that. I think Spike Lee did it most recently. Right. So like, I, I don't understand it. So anyways, I, I, I really like that that uh seed and spark so if you know i don't know how many people are going to listen to us yeah if you if you if you're looking to do something like this i did a ton of research i suggest you do the same thing but you know kickstarter is almost like a four-letter word at this point and uh what's the other one uh indiegogo i had some friends that had done that they told me the ups and downs of it and i actually i stumbled across seed and spark by a mistake because i thought i was planning on doing it on my own and i was going to treat it like a registry for like a baby registry or a wedding registry where people could, you know, help pay for the actors or help pay for catering and help and and do all that. And I thought that it was a great platform too. That maybe I had stumbled across this new way of uh, like a business model to mm-hmm. actually start a platform on my own. After about thirty seconds of research on the uh, the internet, I found Seed and Spark because that's kind of one of the ways that they go about raising money as well. And it's it was founded by these two women, and uh, I watched all their workshops. I mean, it, there a lot of work went into this. It was a full time job, much to the dismay of my wife. Who was very pregnant when I started this thing, and uh, I, every single day I was working on this thing, you know, six, eight, ten hours a day, uh, some days, and you know, it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of humility, and you really got to kind of beg. But for the most part, people were, you know, just really like Brad, like you gave, and I, I thank you very much for that. People are just like uh, want to be supportive of of people and things that they believe in, which is was great. Yeah, and terrifying because now I, I gotta <laughs> you know deliver something that's now not god awful. The expectation is there, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's always a concern. But I mean, yeah. the day that I'm really happy with anything I do, I think is the day I should probably just quit. Because I, I, as soon as you're happy about anything, you get complacent, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I anything I create, I always hate, <laughs> which kind of <laughs> sucks. But that's kind of just the way <laughs> the, the nature of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I can think of a few few people who are really proud of their work who shouldn't be. So maybe it's better mm-hmm. that way. Yeah, there's a new one coming out this weekend. I think uh, something about robots. Yeah, that might be fighting. It. I don't know. That guy, that guy digs his work. He thinks it's great. <laughs> don't know about all that, but yeah. yeah. 
You look at Francis Ford Coppola, and that's twice that he's come up. It's not like I'm a giant fan or anything, but like I love that guy because he's never put his name above one of his movies. He's never mm. felt like he's earned the right to do that. And he's he's fucking Francis Ford Coppola, but right. he always yeah. puts the author of whatever the material is based on, or you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, or or uh, Mario Puzo's. Puzo's. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's never put his name in front of things. That's 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 great. I love that. That's good. So, point. yeah. Um, so like, uh, I think Andrew had a question, uh, he, he, we mentioned earlier, um, about just some of the advice maybe mm. you got and then some of the advice that you go- didn't get that maybe you should have gotten yeah. when you got into, uh, the actual filming of it or even before or after, like, tell, uh, tell us uh, a little bit about that. As, as far as, you know, where it all starts, which is, uh, the, the, the raising the funds for it, mm-hmm. um, a guy named Justin Giddings, he's called the Kickstarter guy. I should give him a little plug, too. And uh, if you use him and uh, let him know that I sent you, Anderson Cowan sent you, uh, I get a little kickback from him. And he and you'll get a little bit off of uh, whatever he charges, uh, which is yeah, it's not that much. He, he took uh, a yeah, percentage off of whatever we raised. But he was my coach, my uh, crowdfunding social media coach, because I'm god awful with social media. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm never on it. I just I know. If I have anything to say, I, sh- I save it for the shows that I do, like uh, the film ball or the after disaster. I don't say it on online. That's just who I am. So he really helped me navigate all those waters, which were really intimidating. And uh, he helped me raise a whole lot more than I would have without him. So whether it's Justin or, or anybody else, if you're trying to you know raise a, a sizable amount of money, like you know anything over five grand, I would definitely recommend getting a coach. Hmm. That, those kind of jobs fascinate me. Like, how do you even like that has to be an outside? Well, I hate outside box thinking, but uh, like that, like, how do you develop that job for yourself? Yeah. You know Justin, I mean? Justin was a, uh, a child actor and he was getting frustrated with, you know, jobs, not, you know, starting to dry up and he wasn't really getting any work. And he, he was one of these guys that wanted to make his own movies. And uh, he went he funded like two or three of his own projects and, you know, learned all the pitfalls and realized all the things that worked and didn't work. And uh, he said, you know what? I, I should start doing this for a living. And I think he makes it pretty. I mean, I saw what he made with me and he was doing like three or four other projects in that same month. So I think that he's making a pretty decent living just helping people out. It's crazy. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed by those kind of people that, that find that niche that needs to be scratched. But like no one's thought yeah. of it. Yeah. 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 He's 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 really good at that. And uh, I, I I I was willing i was i was almost ready to do the same thing with you know thinking that i had discovered this new way of uh raising money through a registry but uh of course it already existed so i'm not in that game <laughs> yeah uh as far as the feature goes uh i hold on my wife's calling i gotta yep i gotta reject it there we <laughs> go um as far as uh Walking onto the set and, you know, me being in go, go, go panic mode and the pool's there and it's still a little bit wet and it smells god awful because of the rains. And, uh, you know, all these people, I probably had 25, 30 people in this house and, you know, the owner of the house was there and he, the the (laughs) script called for an empty house. But the house, I don't want to call the guy that owned the house a hoarder, but he was a hoarder. (laughs) So it was kind of the opposite of what we were looking for, but so much the actual foundation of the house and the setup was perfect. So I just said, okay, you know, on days that we're going to shoot in the living room, we're just going to have to clear all of his shit out, paint the walls and make them look raggedy, put up shitty wallpaper and then repaint everything and make it look, you know, like it it did when we first got there. So we were doing a lot of that. We pretty much redid this guy's house to spec a number of days. But anyways, 
uh, walking on just the equipment alone. We had like a, a giant silk uh, that was like, I think it was 50 feet by 50 feet that flew over the pool and went up about 25, 30 feet in the air. Uh, you know, the giant camera rig, uh, the slider, the, 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 the dolly, all this shit and all the bounce. And that's really intimidating. And uh, I know some of my actors who hadn't really been in big stuff, they see that they walk on a set and they see that and it's not you know just a little video camera on a tripod and they immediately get intimidated and it's it's it is it's very intimidating and if i hadn't actually you know kind of dipped my toe in the water with all the shorts that i'd done especially recently over the last couple of years uh, i think i might have gone into panic mode even like overdrive maybe just shut down with all that stuff and all those people sitting around waiting so i wouldn't just fling yourself into something giant unless you got you know ice in your veins uh you know definitely take baby steps i remember the very first day that we were shooting uh my one of the shorts that you know, i did five shorts in 12 months because that's we had uh production insurance which costs a fortune and you can't even shoot anything with good equipment without production insurance so we spent a ton of money on production insurance for a 12-month policy and we just cranked out as many shorts as we could and my very first day showing up on that set, I was way more intimidated and scared and like, holy shit, what's going on than I was the first day of the feature. Right. So it's like anything else. You know, you should you really get comfortable and familiar with uh, whatever it is you're working with before you throw yourself. I'd be dead in the water. God knows what this thing would look like if I didn't actually do those five shorts um, so recently. Yeah. Well, so with that, like, um, I guess with the shorts, you get you get that experience and then you go to get into here. Like, like when you're like, as, as the production's going on and you're, you're running into headaches, but you're putting out fires and doing another thing. Like, do you find yourself like the shorts, you know, that's a two or three day shoot or whatever. Um, but with this, it, it's 14 days, but it's, it's like, uh, everything. I, I'm having a hard time putting it in words, but like, how much pressure, like you, you talked a little bit on, on the other podcast, but you go home, you play with the kid, try to unwind a little bit, but you'd be right back at it. You're like, you're putting in like 16 hour days, at least I'm, I'm guessing like what kind of, like, did you find yourself that you were in that, that it, it suited you? You know what I mean? Like that it, it didn't have, uh, the effect that it, like, uh, putting in four, 16 hours at your regular job would, do you oh, know what like I mean? did, like, like, what did I have days where I was like, "Wow, this is not the profession for me." Right. Yeah. Did it? Yeah. I had days where uh, probably shouldn't admit this, but I already have. Uh, <laughs> where I was like, "I wish this was already behind me. I wish that we just had this thing in the can," uh, because this is horribly stressful. I I got I developed heart arrhythmia, which is where your uh, heart skips a beat a few times a minute uh, during like the first of the second week of, of shooting, like before we were in half done, I, my heart started doing weird things. Uh, however, I heard from, uh, one of my ADs, one of my assistant directors that he worked with a director that was bright red every single day while shooting, like just bright beat red. And another guy that went blind from stress, like he was so stressed oh, that he went blind in his one eye or something. So I, I felt like I was a little bit ahead of the curve. My little heart arrhythmia thing didn't you know, come in anywhere close to going blind. Uh, but uh, no, I, I, I loved it. I loved the, it's invigorating and, uh, it's exactly where I, I want to be. I, it is physically draining though. I mean, I, I can't imagine how like a guy like Woody Allen, I, I can only imagine that it, it must get easier <laughs> as you go. You get used to things. You learn how to pace yourself. Cause I was, I was drained at the end of the third or fourth day just at, you know, but 
running on adrenaline and I just ran on adrenaline like like a hockey player probably does through two months of playoffs mm-hmm. for the entire shoot. And, you know, and then when it was all done, I think I slept for like three days. Like it was just nonstop thinking takes a lot out of you. It really does. And you, the, the main thing as a, a director of uh, whether it's a short or a feature is you have to have answers for everything. And even if you don't have an answer, you have to uh, find one quick and uh, make sure that everyone believes in your your answer to solve a problem or to you know what the next shot's going to be. You always have to have what color you know the knife handle should be. There's just constantly questions. There was a great commercial uh, done a number of years ago with Wes Anderson. I can't even remember what it was for, but it was a great commercial. And he's just he's walking on a, on one of his sets, and uh, you know everyone's just coming up to him and asking him. You know he probably had a dozen questions before he gets to the director's chair to look at the monitor, and that's exactly what it's like. It's just. Yeah. You can't walk 10 feet. Like I'd go inside to get like a, a, a bottle of water and, you know, I'd be hit with three or four questions from different departments on, on the way in to get a bottle of water. So you got to be, be prepared to, uh, you know, know what you want. Yeah. But no, I, guess- I, I can't wait to be on set. It kind of bums me out that it's been this long. In fact, I'm doing reshoots for uh, one of the shorts that I did. that's still not done that I shot right before the feature. And uh, I'm excited to get back on set. Even though we're just going to be shooting for like two hours, it's going to be fun to train the camera on the actor and uh, work with her. Yeah, so it was like stressful when you're going through it, but now you miss it type of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and you know, we're, we're down in the muck. I mean, this is ultra low budget. It, it's it's it, literally, uh, that's what they call it when you look at union dues and whatnot. This is ultra low budget. Anything under $250,000 is considered ultra low budget, which means, you know, you're going to be roughing it quite a bit. And... uh we, you know, we didn't have a ton of luxuries, but I was really lucky to work with, for the most part, a really great crew and all the cast was really fun. I really missed just hanging out with them. We had, um, so the brother makes it onto the set, the, the gay brother, mm-hmm. um, you know, he makes it into the film, uh, at one point and there's a lot of interaction between the two bullies that are strung up together that have to be gay for each other. And the brother who, uh, you know, I won't uh, give anything away, but he's like, you know, sharing scenes with them and, the his name's Oren Puddles is who I cast as the uh, gay brother. Not Oren Puddles. Jesse Puddles is his name, but his character's name is Oren. And Oren is gay, and Oren is a character, and Oren um, is kind of like a method actor. And he, I didn't know it, but behind when I wasn't around, he was encouraging the two kids that were playing the bullies to actually bully him and make fun of him. And that went on <laughs> probably for about four days straight. And it was hilarious. And uh, a couple times I felt like I was getting almost too real. Yeah, it sounds and I, like it I, could I, get pretty I was going to step in. But there was so much homophobia flying around on the set Jeez. at the actor's request. So it was actually, it was quite. What's funny, too, is um, I hope we're not boring uh, your, your audience with. Absolutely uh, not. I don't, we're the audience, so. You're, yeah. And you're not boring us. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I had a lot of misgivings going into this because of the nature of the. Uh, subject matter you know a homophobia and uh you know i've been on both sides of that i've been called a fag i've been called you know I, a lot of people in high school thought i was gay because i the way i dressed and whatnot um but then i've also been on the other side of it and you know there's there's evidence out there of me on Loveline calling listeners gay and playing drops of you know like homophobic drops left and right for about 10 years probably that that was my main thing was just <laughs> playing your gay drops uh so I felt a little a little apprehensive, I guess, about the uh, subject matter. So I was really careful to talk to like uh, people in my life that I'm close with that are gay, 
whether lesbian or um, or homosexual and gay. I guess it's gay and lesbian. It's it's so weird because lesbians are gay too. Yeah, yeah, but you don't associate. Yeah, yeah gay weird. guys don't get their own. Yeah, thing. They're gays. The anyway, yeah. well, well, they did, had it, but then yeah, yeah but now it's pejorative. So yeah. yeah, but not that uh, I want to say it. But anyway, yeah, I kind of um, feel like saying queer right now, but I shouldn't. Yeah, no, it's uh, well, you know, we're. You're all good. Yeah, I talked. Uh, upset. I, I had some. I obviously I have some really close friends uh, of mine that are are uh, both gay <laughs> and lesbian, and uh, I was lucky enough that my producer, who was fantastic, uh, Max Landworth, he was a real lifesaver. I had a really strong producer, so I was always in really good hands. That guy was great. He's the one who actually uh, recommended uh, Josh uh, Gettings to do the uh, crowdfunding coach. But he's gay, and uh, he was pushing for me to even go farther. Uh, with his story uh, than I than I was going to, and he was all about it, which is great. He wasn't one of these uh, easily offendable mm-hmm. guys that's always looking for a platform to uh, you know become a victim at all. He was great sense of humor, and uh, he's heavily involved in the gay community, so I could trust him. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the guys that I that I cast uh, ended up being gay, like I said, so I was kind of checking in with them. In fact, uh, Jesse Puddles, who plays Oren, I was talking about earlier. Uh, he had one issue with the script. It wasn't even anything that his character said. It was something that another character later on said, and he said that's going to upset the gay community. So I, you know, I tr- entrusted him. I had no idea. I'm a, you know, straight guy living in the suburbs, married with a kid. I had no idea that uh, this one aside that I had written for a character would upset the uh, gay community. Way the way he explained it, like it would have been a huge misstep. So I'm really happy that he was there to help me out. Right. And, uh, you know, I had to talk to these two. You know, high school age boys are a little bit older, but they look, you know, 18 years old that are going to be strapped together in mm-hmm. sexual positions for days on end on camera. Uh, I had to explain to them after because they auditioned and they got the roles. But, you know, the sides, they call them sides. You get two, three pages of script that you read for the auditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, that didn't really tell the whole story. So once I settled on who I wanted to cast, I had backups for both of them because I knew there was a very good chance that once I sat down with them and told them what they were in for, one, if not both of them, would back out. I was prepared for that. And I'll never forget, I, I met with both of them at a coffee shop in Hollywood after they got the roles, and uh, they thought they were going to be rehearsing and doing this and that. And I purposely did it in a public space where I could kind of quietly tell them what they're going to be doing and that they're. I'm like your your penises aren't actually gonna be connected to these <laughs> to this Chinese finger trap, but we're gonna make it look like that, and you know your family's gonna see this. And are you guys cool with it? And there was uh, some pregnant pauses, and uh, there was some concerned looks on the faces. And I said, you know, talk to your family and get back to me. And uh, they both they both were totally cool with it, and they were they were great on the set. Uh, awesome. well, like. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. One, one more thing on that that's funny, and I know I'm just fucking going on and on and on, but no, it's fine. the first time I've talked about uh, groupers in a while, so this is kind of nice. But uh, one, uh, something that's kind of funny is, like, you know, going back to me feeling guilty as a homosexual, I mean, a, a heterosexual man living in the suburbs, w- what right do I have to tell this story that's so leaning, you know, against uh, homo- homophobia and the, the victim uh, of homophobic acts? Who am I? Uh, I'm not of that community necessarily, but as I'm shooting it, and you know we're getting these. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the the scenes take place uh, has one of the high school age boys trying to get you know 
tumescent for his friend. And, you know, we got slow pan, <laughs> slow push-ins on this kid. And I'm, you know, working with him. I'm saying, all right, you're going to really be trying hard, but you're frustrated because you can't. And you're going to get this faraway look in your eye. And you're going to be getting close. And he's going to be talking to you like a woman. And, you know, you're going to be trying. And it, it occurred to me at, at that moment, I'm like, thank God I'm not gay. Because this would feel <laughs> so exploitative. You know, these young, attractive uh boys uh doing these scenes for me if i was gay it would feel like i was really taking advantage you know like a sleazy Ugh. producer uh you know making some kind of like topless teen porn or something right so thank god i was hetero for the, for the actual <laughs> shoot <laughs> well that's uh, that well that's kind of the question i had for you is like where is there is there a, a line where you had did you consciously find a place where you're trying not to be preachy with that kind of message? You know, like where you don't want to be like, uh, you know, homophobia yeah. is bad, and then this is yeah. how I'm gonna, uh, how but like to um, balance the 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 message with the entertainment, I guess. Yeah, without, uh, that's, without coming that's off as preachy. A great point because I, I I hate a lot of things, Brad, but uh, <laughs> Brad, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, preachy is probably right there at the top of the list. And it would have been real easy to be preachy with this one. And if anything, I overcompensated um, with making the brother, the gay brother, actually, in the for initial draft, he was ultimately way worse than the two homophobes once everything was said and done. Um, he was a meth head. He was, uh, you know, kind of a, um, a racist. Uh, he, he had a lot of qualities that you could not get on board with. So, yeah, I was really the point when everything's said and done is like every, there's always gray matter. There's everyone's a victim in their own way. Everyone's a bully in their own way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that I managed to not be preachy, uh, even though I did rewrite his character quite a bit. But he's still he's still a villain, a sympathetic villain. But they're all villains. kind of. There's only one good, good uh, character in, in all this. And he doesn't show up until like the last 20 minutes of the movie. That'd be um, easy to be preachy, real easy to be preachy, though. There's nothing worse than I love uh, Orange is the New Black. I don't know if you guys watch that. It's like yeah. maybe my favorite show, and it's getting fucking preachy this season, and it's pissing me off. <laughs> it's really upsetting me. Yeah, they always they always seem to skirt that in the earlier seasons, and uh, and then go off into the fun stuff, and then come back, you know, with yeah. the, the big issues. But yeah, yeah, it's it's preachy as shit. <laughs> I haven't I haven't done the research. I looked up the writer. Mm -hmm. uh, of a few of the scenes, uh, episodes that, it's, that are really pissing me off. But one of the main um, commentary is white white women having being the voice for black women and how wrong that is. And I'm pretty sure the woman who wrote it is white. Oh, so she yeah. is the voice of the black women. So the hypocrisy there is. But I haven't looked. At, I haven't looked. I haven't found any pictures of her yet. But I'm pretty well, sure it, she's a white woman. If it's the case, it's just pandering. You know, it, then it goes from to have a message is just pandering and it's just that then it loses every ounce of uh any any goodness or any that was yeah. initially there to start so yeah um pandering but, and preaching are kind of like one and the same uh, often there's nothing worse yeah absolutely um so you're one thing well you're waiting you're you're in editing right now, so you're your hands off a little bit until it comes back to you. And you're you you said on the other podcast you're looking like at a a late fall, early Chris or like before Christmas release, maybe at the best. Well, I would release is a funny word, especially when you're this independent. It's not like I'm on anyone's radar, you know, not like I got a studio backing me and they're talking to me about you know when it's gonna be, you know, 
theatrically released. Uh, so that's all on me, and uh, I'm going to have to get it into festivals and hopefully you know, garner some interest and, and get some kind of deal. The goal, ultimately, is to get enough uh, interest with this one that I can make one of the other ones that I like even more uh, that just cost more. That's, that's the goal here. But uh, short-term goals, I would like to have a completed project before Thanksgiving. It would be great to say, okay, I, it, uh, a year ago, 12 months ago, I raised the money. You guys gave me the money for this, and here we are 12 months later, and the thing is finished. Right. Uh, as far as it being available to everyone that helped out and everyone that wants to see it, I, I don't know, you know, it, it you got to play the festival game and that takes months. And, uh, I don't know. Cause I, it's really easy to misstep and fuck up and make it available, uh, too soon. And then it's not even eligible to festivals and it fizzles out and then you're done. So you got to be really careful. Hmm. Gotcha. So go ahead, Andrew. Um, I was, I guess this would go back to maybe when you were starting to make short films, but I guess groupers could fall into this category. Was there any advice? Cause people always talk about the advice they got and like the, how, um, how great it is, how important it is, et cetera. Yeah. And, and I'm sure it is, but was there anything that someone told you and your immediate thought was like, fuck you. Like, I don't, don't give me this. This is stupid. And then you ended up needing it. Um, I probably didn't seek out as much advice as I should have. Oh, okay. Uh, I did, I did, I did call one director mm -hmm. whose name is escaping me right now. And he's a really nice guy. And we talked for about 20 minutes probably. Uh, and I was supposed to call another director, the guy that did, um, Terry's and the lovers or most recently. Uh, but I never got around to calling him because pre-production was so crazy and I just mm -hmm. ran out of time. I wish I called that guy, but I got really good advice from, uh, you know, I was asking dumb, real dumb questions and you know, there, there really is no such thing as a dumb question. The last thing you want to do is never ask a question you don't know the answer to and then be right. fucked and then you're really dumb. Yeah. But I didn't even know like how, these actors were making essentially minimum wage when, you know, $125 a day, in a couple instances, 150 bucks a day for a 10 hour day. I mean, you do the math, it, it's not much money at all. Uh, and I wanted to rehearse the shit out of them before we started shooting so that, you know, that saves a ton of time. And a lot of time with features, you don't get a chance to do much rehearsal at all. So mm -hmm. I didn't want to take advantage and have these guys rehearse too much. So that was like my, my main question. Like what's, what's too much? Like how much is too much, mm -hmm. uh, as far as rehearsing? Cause I don't get paid for rehearsals. And, um, he gave me some good answers with that. He was also an actor slash director. So oh, he could yeah, tell so. me. I was really scared. I don't want to say, yeah, I guess I was kind of scared. I was nervous, uh, of, of pissing off, uh, an actor and, you know, uh, speaking down to them or making them mm -hmm. uncomfortable. So I wanted to be really careful, uh, not to do that. And he gave me some horror stories of the way directors had, had treated him, which made me feel a lot better because I would never do things like that. You know, you gotta be really, yeah. you gotta be like a psychologist with all your different, uh, actors and get the right mood and, and make sure that you don't put them in a bad place unless you want to put them in a bad place. Uh, for the sake of the scene, which I, I got to do that a few times, which is a lot of fun. I can easily make someone feel uncomfortable, and I have a harder time making people feel comfortable. So, <laughs> uh, but no, I, I wish that I had a great answer because that's a great question. But so far, I haven't really gotten any um, bullshit. Yeah. And if I have, it's just eluding me right now. Yeah. But uh, I mean, it's just <clears> it's always the the hindsight twenty twenty type thing. So I was just wondering if anything came across my advice because i've had you know i've had uh a, yeah, a few friends of mine get that you want to dole out it's just it's 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 kind of a cop-out but anything you don't expect 
to go wrong will go wrong. Yeah. And uh, I had, you know, plenty of that on on this mm-hmm. set. Uh, like we, we rented a van and there was a it was a fairly involved shot. But uh, the shot called for her to pull her van, the van up, throw it in park. She's wearing a gas mask. Uh, she has a taser. She gets up from the, the seat of the, the driver's seat. She pulls the trigger on the taser. The taser actually is functioning. So it goes off. We catch it with a camera. The camera all in one shot follows to, through the side of the van to the back of the van where she kicks the doors open. Smoke comes out. And she subdued the two boys, right? That's mm-hmm. that's the shot, and it's probably it's, my DP said it's the favorite shot of the film that we did, and uh, that took a lot of of you know getting your ducks in a row and making sure everything's safe, and she could barely see with the gas mask on, and we had the smoke machine going inside the the hazer, and uh, all this shit that you have to think about and make sure you nail it, and then when she goes to open the the back door of the van. Uh, it's it doesn't open from inside the van that we rented uh, the, the the latch is broken on the inside so she can't open the fucking doors and that kind of thing you know that and that took us an hour and a half to to monkey around it we took the whole door apart we're trying to fix it and you know you don't anticipate that kind of thing going wrong but it's gonna happen shit like that's going to happen for sure so just mm-hmm. be ready for be ready for the unexpected to really throw you off and don't let it throw you off to the point where you can't recover. Uh, so that was great knowing that that kind of thing was just around the corner and it didn't surprise me when it happened. I thought it was kind of funny mm-hmm. and we just rolled with it and we ended up, uh, you know, using magnets, to keep the doors closed. And we had a PA, uh, holding a rope that was attached to the bottom of the one door and he'd help swing it open and, and keep it open once she kicked it. So mm-hmm. we made it work. It just took a while. Nice. Well, but, uh, just talking about shots, did you incorporate any specific shots that you wanted, like from other films? I mean, whenever I've heard you talk about the different shots you love, like, you know, let's say the beginning of uh, Boogie Nights or um, like all the different things you've seen. Like, is there anything particular you took into the, uh, uh, the cinematography? Yeah, the cinematography yeah. of it. Like anything you wanted to do just to do it. Like, anything, yeah, yeah, anything that I would really want to do, we didn't have budget for. Hmm. Uh, back to that old excuse. Uh, okay. What I did mainly was uh, I made sure that we had as much coverage as we could possibly squeeze in, so that I wouldn't paint myself into a corner uh, here with the editing. Uh, back to the editing too. It's not like I'm checked out. Uh, I'm waiting for him to give me a chunk so I can give him some more notes. I would love to be sitting next to him every day and doing it the way that they normally do it because this is the first thing that I haven't edited myself so it's frustrating and like, I just want to jump into the computer and, and you know start moving things around myself so I, my hands are kind of tied but uh, he's in Chicago and once he gets this one monster scene that we're starting with done it's going to be much more hands on but uh, back to your initial question we opened the, the thing with a uh, steady cam shot we actually had a steady cam operator who's done really big things in the business come in and do, do one just as a favor for us uh, for the opening shot of the film. And it's, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel. Uh, it's not, I think a lot of viewers probably won't even notice that it's one continuous shot, but it starts the front of the bar and we go in and we see a few things that are happening. All the extras were people that gave to the project or people that I know and friends. So that was really cool. So I know, you know, pretty much everyone that's in that shot. And then uh, we land on our three lead characters that we had never seen before. And then we have my favorite L.A. band on stage. Fart Barf is up there <laughs> playing, which is pretty great. And the camera follows them. So we're going from the front of the bar, through the bar, out the back door of the bar, into the van. And uh, she starts the engine and then cut to we're on the road. And that was a really fun shot. We actually shot that two blocks away from where the Boogie Nights uh, opening scene was shot, which is kind of cool. Yeah. 
That's and awesome. then we did two shots, at least, no, yeah, both two shots that Kubrick did in, uh, in The Shining. Uh, where she, where uh, he's locked in the, uh, she's locked in the, um, the, the ice, the, the pantry, the refrigerator. Yeah. He is. Yeah, he's yes. locked. In there. She locks him in there. Yeah, yeah. Which is uh, cool because there's, there's not a whole lot of behind the scenes stuff on Kubrick, that, but that particular shot, it, there is a behind the scenes you can find where you see him coming up with that shot. And uh, Kubrick, as, a, as much of a perfectionist as he was, he didn't take it to the lengths that. Uh, Hitchcock did where every single shot was um, storyboarded, which kind of can be boring, uh, quite honestly, if you have everything, you know, predetermined. Uh, it's really fun, you know, looking at it and saying, OK, we were going to do this shot, but this one would be way, way more fun. And that's how he came up with that shot in the in the freezer. It's like he was looking at they're trying to figure out how it would work. And then he got down on the ground and held his little viewfinder up and he's like, this is a great shot. So we got to do that one. And that's fun. That's cool. So, like, after doing all this, like, um, actors and obviously actors need a lot of praise for like what they do, uh, how they how they portray a role and all that stuff. But like it, it seems the way you're talking and I've heard I mean, I've read books and, and heard interviews with other directors as far as like the amount of time and effort and just to develop one shot. And you're asking the actor to do a lot, perhaps. But um how much more appreciation do you get for like the behind the scenes, not only the director, but the DP and like everybody else on the, uh, in, I mean, I'm sure just with your, your film, you had, I don't even know how many people we had on set or how many people were just involved. Um, but like how much more appreciation did you get for, uh, just the behind the scene stuff just to get like, let's say that one shot done, you know, with let's say the van. Yeah. Yeah, you realize just how much work goes into it, how many people have to be out there sacrificed. It was freezing cold. I, I think that we have this idea that, you know, actors and people that work in movies live this, you know, charmed, pampered life. But uh, they're out in the elements uh, quite often. I mean, we were in, we're in Southern California, but it was very cold some nights that we were out there. You know, people were getting hungry. People were getting cranky. People were going over hours for me a, a couple nights because we just were slowed down because the cop didn't show up that we needed. You know, the, things happen. And uh, people are at pretty much anything you see, uh, especially if it's being shot on location and you're watching it in the theater or at home, know that there's a bunch of people that are giving their all, uh, you know, on the other sides of the frame. And uh, that's the case with almost every set that I've been on. And a lot of the time you'll be on sets where they're doing it begrudgingly because they're getting a paycheck. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're just kind of working from the neck down and their head's not in it. But that wasn't the case with my set. And that's not the case with a lot of these independent movies because they're not getting paid much to begin with they believe in the project and they're willing to sacrifice you know their their well-being my uh, one of my lead actors got super sick right in the middle of shooting and uh he hung in there and just you know he was sick as can be until ideal action and then he would just snap out of it it was hmm. it was really impressive but uh yeah there's i have a huge appreciation for people who i i know i opened up i don't know if it was on the show i was telling you i hate people that work in the business a lot of them but there's a lot of people that really you know, work, give their all and their minds are always firing and coming up with the best solutions. They're creative people They're and So, yeah. Uh, and actors, like I can never do what actors do. And I was <laughs> taking, especially my, the two boys that play the homophobes, mm -hmm. they had every single line. They got a, they got a, a bulk of the, uh, the, the dialogue and they had everything just completely memorized they were totally off book the entire thing and i was i was almost taking it for granted and uh i'd stop myself and i'd thank them and say look guys 
I have to worry about all so many things right now, but I don't have to worry about you. So it's it's great that I don't have to worry about you. And I'm not even thinking about you guys that much because I don't have to because you guys are giving me what I want. So thank you very much. Uh, sorry for not saying thank you every <laughs> single time you give me what I need. Hmm. Well, so like um, and. I guess uh, one of the one of the, I don't, don't want to take up too much more of your time, uh, but I, we'd be remiss if we didn't get into the after disaster and some pill vault questions. We won't, like I said, I don't, don't want to take up too much more time. Um, but like we're both big fans, and you know we've talked a little bit of how the after disaster came to be, and it's just um, like from afar, and I'm sure you've heard this a ton of times. Like you, the listeners that that you have feel like they know you and Mike and Tyler so well, you know, yeah. just because of, um, and what I want to know, like how, what, in I think Andrew asked me this and I think we talked about it a little bit before we talked to you, just like how much do you have to pull back from your yeah. personal life, uh, to make, you know, it, it keep still keep it interesting, but still keep it real. Or keeping it real. Why am I talking uh, cliches? <laughs> no, I didn't hear that at all. Um, I really didn't until you brought attention to it. That's something <laughs> Corona, Corona and I or I would do for sure. Uh, the the after disaster is like you know, people say that it's like therapy when they when they listen to it because they realize they're not alone in this world. You know, with yeah. all the grievances and uh, complaints that particularly Mike and I have. Um, and I, I think it's the same for Mike and I. It, it's therapy to get these things off our chest and to mm-hmm. say these things out loud, you know, into a microphone that we know other people are going to hear. And not, not only are they going to hear it, but they're going to come back next week to hear more of it. So, uh, you know, just knowing that people are listening, uh, I think, makes us feel like we're we're doing something. We're saying things that have, I, I guess, uh, a common thread with with other people that are out there. We're not the only ones who feel this, these ways. Um but as far as being honest, I, I don't have, to, I don't really pull back much of anything other than like stuff with my wife. Like I learned early on that if she and I have an argument, I should not discuss it <laughs> on the show. And, uh, you know, any, and pretty much most of, um, anything that I bite my tongue on or don't go into is just about, uh, the wife and I, she's a very private person. She's op- opposite of me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I have been. I have gotten stuff off of my chest and admitted to like some of the most humiliating thing, probably the most humiliating things that have ever happened to me in my life on that show. And, you know, I've turned awful experiences into things that we can all laugh about later, which is the best. Yeah. And, you know, I, I carry that with me. I I've always a little bit had that cause I've been writing for so long. You know, like any, every time anything horrible is happening to me, uh, I think, well, at least I can write about this now, or at least, you know, I've experienced this and I can, I can, you know, tell other people about it or, you know, relate to people that are going through similar things later, there's always a positive out of these negatives. And Mm -hmm. now that I can, as soon as something awful is happening to me at the market, I'm like, can't wait to tell Tyler and Mike about this, you know, (laughs) a different perspective. Yeah. Puts a little spin on it. I I don't really, there's very few things that I, you know, hold back on. I I can't really think of anything. I, you know, I try not to get into like sexual stuff because nobody wants to hear that. But, uh, you know, if it comes up, we're Mike not and I are show. usually right there. We're not that show, yeah. <laughs> sex man would disagree, but whatever. Oh, sex man would get all into the sex, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, do you, is it weird? Do you think of yourselves? Um, because we talked about how there's a lot of us, Brad and I included, who really can uh, identify and tune in each week. And um, we feel like we're a part of your lives. And, and we were talking about, I think you were mentioning uh, before we started recording that, 
you know, only 10% of radio listeners will call in. Um, is it weird to think oh, one, of one 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 tenth of one percent? Oh, is what one, I learned when I worked in radio. Oh, yeah. one tenth of one percent. That's yeah. significantly less. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's one in a thousand. If my yeah. math is right. Yeah. Oh, I've, we're we're not a we're not really math people, so uh, we'll just have to go with that. Um, math. It's, I thought this was the math and movie show. Yeah, math. Yeah, <laughs> we we do ABVs. We like those. Um, do you? Is it weird? Do you think of yourself uh, as a personality? Like, do you realize that that's oh. something? Um, I know that that's probably something that you would be against, I would guess. No, no, yeah. I, I mean, everyone's a personality. The right, personality yeah. is a weird word because... Uh, yeah, it is. It, it's, it's a radio world word for the most part. They use it in talk shows as well, but mm -hmm. it, I think it probably stems from radio. Radio came before TV. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can tell you from working in radio, and I'm not naming names, but uh, these quote-unquote personalities ha right. are vapid, uh, a lot of them, and they don't really have much of a personality to begin with and everything that they do on air is that quote unquote personality mm -hmm. and ironically the word personality uh, which should mean something very unique uh, turns into uh, just people parroting or doing what they I'm not talking about Corolla Corolla is an actual absolute unique personality I'm not talking about Drew necessarily uh, I'm talking about people that I've worked with that consider themselves per yeah, personalities they're, they're caricatures and they're just doing a, they're doing like shtick yeah. and it's it's god awful right i can't stand it uh everyone has a personality and right. i think that you know if anything i'm a personality on the film vault but mm -hmm. i'm not trying that's just yeah I'm, no I, I i definitely don't want to imply that you're trying but i just think of it like um i will talk to my girlfriend about what uh you guys are up to on the after disaster you guys are um and it's kind of I like do the a same one thing way with mirror my wife with thing. Bill Burr. Yeah. I'm always telling my wife about what Bill Burr's up to. And yeah. This and that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of she a rolls her eyes and, uh, you know, we move <laughs> on. Yeah. Well, sounds like we're all sharing a very similar experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like the clothes, like on the, on the film, I'm, I'm always like myself and I'm mm -hmm. honest, but I kind of go into the show when I do the film vault and I kind of, okay. especially when we were doing it at the Corolla studios, cause I never felt comfortable over there. Mm. And I listen back to those shows sometimes, you know, and I just kind of like cringe and I wince because I think most people, if they're uncomfortable, that's going to be the worst version of themselves. And you know, it sucks for guys, you know, yeah. we've all been through it where you're trying to like, you know, talk to a girl and you're the most uncomfortable you've been all week. Yeah. And it happens to be when you should be the most comfortable because that would yield the most fruit in talking to this girl, but you're the most uncomfortable you've been all week because you're talking to a girl and you're going to come off as the worst version of yourself. Mm -hmm. So being uncomfortable on air is not good. And that's how I was for like a year plus over at Corolla. We, it was just, I never felt welcome there. I never felt like, uh, and it's, there's some of that has kind of bled over it to, you know, Brian and I doing it now independently on our mm -hmm. own. Uh, but I'm still kind of in that shell when I'm with Brian because Brian and I just have that kind of relationship, you know? Yeah. But when I do the after disaster, which is usually, you know, an hour or two after I finish the film vault, it's so nice to see, you know, mm. people like I feel like I, yeah, I can be completely myself and I don't yeah. have to worry about, you know, um, saying, you know, the wrong thing or being, you know, mistaken or for, uh, I just, I feel like I'm a dick when I'm on with Brian and I don't feel comfortable being a dick. No, it's not but that. It's hard, I mean, hard not no, don't do that. It it you guys have a it's a dynamic uh, two different personalities is what it is and it's and it's in that you guys are friends it's great because you guys can rib each other and you make it work it's it's it, it's just a different dynamic because like he he runs he kind of runs the like as far as the hosting like you look at the hosting 
hosting part of it. You you kind of take the reins of the after disaster, you know, when you're like, you know, hey, we're here and doing this and stuff. And then when it comes to the film vault, it seems like he has a little bit more like he's the. That's very important to Brian. And it doesn't (laughs) really matter to me at all. In fact, once he was a little bit running late. And uh, I just kind of started without him. I knew he was going to be there in about two minutes, but we were pressed for time. So I opened the show, and, uh, and then he sat down, and uh, he was visibly angry. He wanted me to uh, – he, he demanded that we start over. He has to open the show. And I'm like, I, I, I really don't care. Uh, the after disaster, that's kind of fallen on my lap because uh, Mike and Tyler weren't from radio at all when we started. Tyler was a phone screener on Loveline, but, you know, they didn't have any kind of experience with, with that kind of thing. So I just – I did it, and I still find myself kind of trying to keep a straight line with that show. I'm the voice of reason, I think. We're trying to keep it on, on track as much as I possibly can. <laughs> but no, it's it's not important to me to open the show or be the quote-unquote host uh, like it is right. to, to certain people. And that's just one more reason why I, you know, I'm a little bit bristly on that show is because that type of person that's demanding to be the host, and I hope I'm not ruffling any feathers here with you, with you Brad or Andrew, But no, I I, heard you before. You're like, hey, do you want to open the show? Like, it doesn't matter. But mm -hmm. to the type of person that it does matter to, that's the kind of person that I'm going to, you know, uh, get my horns out and kind of ram a little bit. And that's Brian, which, (laughs) you know, he knows that. So I don't. Yeah. Uh, Do you I I think it would be like I and I don't I, I don't it would take so much time. But like I would be fascinated just by the amount of people that came through the and you you could never do this because if you try to if you did like a tell all then you would actually burn all your bridges but like all the the people you came across w- through with uh love line like all the musical acts the actors like everybody that came through i i find that not that i want to be around those people i just think that that um you actually get to see the people like oh, it's yeah. late night they're tired they could be drunk or stoned or all that stuff like you actually get to see the real version not the you know entertainment tonight version of those people like i i would be fascinated to see just i mean because i guess it's more real life you it people aren't that much different other than they're famous or they're not famous yeah um do you ever take stock in just the um the amount of people you've seen and just like bad behavior or and or oh, yeah. good behavior the surprising behavior oh, oh yeah for sure yeah i uh my wife knows best because, uh, you know, the TV's on quite a bit and she watches all sorts of horrific shit. <laughs> and uh, I see a lot of these people coming through in my living room on the TV that I've had personal interactions with uh, over the years at Loveline. And uh, she usually doesn't uh, even respond to my uh, my vitriol that I spit when I see these people you know, pop onto the screen. Yeah. But, yeah, I got a lot of hate and uh, I let things get in my craw and it usually never leaves. Uh, I, I have a long memory for people that have rubbed me the wrong way and uh, a number of those people that came through those doors uh, rubbed me the wrong way. But a number were, were great, too, and uh, really surprised me. And those are the stories that I usually tell, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like the Josh Brolin and I having a cigarette out front of the studio during a break was was fucking great, you know, and um, Alec Baldwin. But then you got the Mario Van Peebles, who was exactly mm-hmm. who I feared he would be. And he was just <laughs> god awful. And I, I could not wait to be out of his presence, you know. <laughs> But yeah, well, I, uh, uh, it's what's funny is the the bigger the star, usually the nicer they were. Like Matthew McConaughey was fantastic, hmm. and uh, the Kooks, who just have a new album, just came out. I guess uh, were, were not so fantastic. It's the ones that are coming up that seemed like they had more of a chip on their shoulder, like they wanted to be famous, but they were always prepared to like not be treated as famous and get pissed about it. Those were the ones that were a pain in the ass. Hmm. 
the they were act, acting as if they were. Yeah. yeah, like almost. And then sometimes what's interesting is they'd come back years later once they did actually become famous and they'd be much cooler. It's weird. I could see, you'd, you'd think it'd be the opposite of that, but it wasn't. It was hmm. as they were coming up, before they were famous, they were dicks. Once they got what they felt like they deserved, they were much easier to deal with. Weird. I guess that yeah. makes sense to a degree. Like it's a, a, a facade to a degree. So Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, like act like you want to be, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, they think that they need to be prima donnas to be perceived as superstars or something like that. And then we had Lemmy of Motorhead. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you guys are a fan of, of yeah. Lemmy, the yeah. legend that is. But like, you know, I was talk about having my horns out and being ready to, you know, because I, I had to have hands on with the almost every guest. I was there before the producer was there. She'd book these horrible people and I would have to <laughs> greet them. And it was it was upsetting most nights. And uh, I'm in there, and uh, Lemmy was 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 uh, scheduled, and it was cool because he's a rock legend. But I don't know anything about Lemmy. You know, I know a few Motorhead songs, not a, yeah. by any means a big fan. And uh, my first impression of Lemmy was not him, but his people coming in to uh, do a quick scout of the area, uh, to wander around uh, our studio space, make sure that the lighting was to his liking. They dimmed some lights. And then uh, he's waiting in his limo while this is going on. I had already poured his Jack Daniels that was demanded. This is radio. These things don't happen in radio. But he demanded Jack Daniels. Not only that, but it had to be on ice. And uh, we didn't have an ice machine. So we had to like, have somebody bring it. I didn't have to bring in the ice. But somebody, the phone screener, brought in ice that we put in the free, uh, free, freezer, which wasn't even cold enough to keep it uh, freezing. So it was like melting. It was just a huge fucking pain in the ass. On top of, you know, me trying to do my job, which is the technical side of things, and I'm pissed. Yeah. And Lemmy comes wandering in, you know, 10 minutes later, and I couldn't have been more in love with the guest. He was the best. He was great. <laughs> he went out with me on every smoke break, and we talked about all sorts of shit. And I, I, I love that guy. He's one of my favorites of all time. So a lot of time they have shitty people, too, mm -hmm. uh, but they end up being great. Yeah. Nice. Well, um, I... I the only I only have one more question to ask uh, if and unless Andrew you got anything more um, uh -oh, the boy the boy's crying uh, I can yeah I can I can give you one more I, I the only thing I want to know that we asked this our our guest uh, the bar from movies that you want to drink in and the actor or the character you want to drink with at that bar uh, I could do that pretty easy with uh, Barfly the uh, Golden Trumpet. And uh, it just I would love to drink with Chanowski. Yeah. Uh, uh, and actually, they shot that right around the corner from where Loveline was for the bulk of the time that I was on the show. And we had, speaking of cool guests, we had Frank Stallone on uh, one night. And me being like a heavy smoker back then was actually really came in handy because every time uh, any uh, cool guest that I would want to talk to uh, would come on, a lot of the time they'd smoke. They'd see me going out and they'd get all stoked. And we'd have that in common immediately, and we'd have, be having a cigarette together, and we'd talk about all sorts of shit. And Frank was telling me exactly where uh, the Golden Horn was and where they shot this and how they tore it down. And where the Golden Horn was, for those of you, Barfly is just a phenomenal film uh, to begin with uh, about Charles Bukowski. But uh, they, they shot that on uh, at Main Street and Culver Boulevard, or the cross, cross streets uh, in Culver City. And it is now a pieology, which is just fucking depressing beyond belief but to drink in that little spot where uh he would 
get his fuel and uh, fight Frank Stallone out in the uh, parking lot and in the alleyway behind is it would be so fucking cool. I've stood in the spot, but it's a pyology now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if they a, serve beer in there. Oh, shame. Yeah, shame on them. Yeah. <laughs> so. All right, man. Well, you're yeah. the best. I appreciate it so much. Dude, thanks and good a lot. luck. Good luck with groupers. Thanks, uh, we'll be pumping it up and hopefully we'll see it here soon. All right. So uh, once again, we want to thank Anderson for joining us. That was super awesome. Um, yeah. a, a lot of fun. A lot of, a lot of good info. Groupers, uh, the movie. Uh, his website is andersoncowan.com. Um, there you can find out all of the stuff he's up to. I think he also has uh, reviews of movies and, and stuff like that. Stuff of that nature. A lot of film-centric things. Yep. Uh, and um, if, hmm, Go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, and if you if you get enough of us and you get enough of our other podcasts, you can listen to what he does on the Film Vault and um, on the After Disaster and also uh, c- Cinematics. Yes. Uh, which he does a monthly podcast now on that where he reviews the movies that are coming out each month. <clears throat> and uh yeah it it was nice to talk to him because um and we i don't know how much fanboying we did with that but uh <laughs> he's been like literally a uh a, a weekly like two to three hours a week i'd listen to him talk yeah and you know i guess people who are listening to this do the same thing with us but yeah. um you know the, to be able to talk to him and like hear just his uh, love of movies and stuff is it comes off on the podcast, but you can hear that in the way that he was talking about what he was doing and how much he enjoyed uh, what he did there. So it was it was oh, cool yeah. to talk to him and kind of pick his brain. Yeah, and absolutely. Hope- and it's nice to to hear about, you know, someone, especially since we are such fans of movies to actually hear some, uh, movies and of his his podcast to hear someone who we've been listening to for years now. Uh, actually go out and make a feature film. It's super cool. Um, a pretty unique opportunity. So thanks again for for him presenting that to us. And, and Brad, thank you for setting that up and getting that all squared away for us. And bogarting all the questions. Sorry no. about that. No, I, I <laughs> no, you didn't. I was kind of the, the silent part. I just got lost in, in listening to him tell, tell his story because that's, you know, I, I hope that that's similar to, to a story I tell someday. So yeah, I was definitely just got lost in that. Um, but if you want to listen to me tell stories about my day hmm. now, uh, you can search, uh, Matt and Andrew versus society. Uh, we're on the website, the sauce lounge.com where, uh, Matt and I just discuss our day to day lives and, uh, break down all the minutia and just yeah. generally and- complain and et cetera. You know, have a good time. I, we have. I tell you what, I talked about it on the span on Span of Void this week, and I don't know if it comes out this week or next week. I don't know, mm-hmm. but um, just the just the way I think you guys have really like hit a good stride. Like you fall right into it. You, there's no preamble. There's no setup. It's just you go right into <laughs> it, and it's the it's consistent every week. Well, and good. it's yeah, it's um, consistently yeah, bad it, is still consistent, which is that's good. right. Um, no, but I, I mean, I always, I won't, I won't listen to things that I don't find interesting and I, you know, I listen to you guys every week, so Sweet. it's, it's a good show. 
Yeah, thesaucelaunch.com. Uh, uh, iTunes, obviously, but thesaucelaunch.com is the website where we also host every episode of this show, the Bruin View podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you need more Brad in your life, which you do. Yeah. You do. Yeah. You do. So on the void.com. Yeah. If you think this, yeah. this podcast is long, well, it's actually longer than most Span of Void episodes, but that's okay. Yeah, well, um, we'll edit that out in post. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's been a boy. We talk about it's just a bunch of guys sitting around talking about things, and it's it's been good. We've been having fun. So yeah. Uh, yeah, come over, check us out, and you probably have. But if you're a new listener, hopefully you'll come check us out. But and also go on iTunes, rate and review us. Let us know what you think. Yeah. Um, if you're a new listener, please let us know. Contact uh, Span or I always do that. Brewview Podcast <laughs> at gmail dot com. Brewview Pod. Brewview Pod. Sorry, and I'm just screwing up everything. Too many beers, too many yeah. views. Yeah, too many uh, beers. yeah. That's so, what it is. It's I'm, all the views. I'm all up in my head. Yeah. Um, subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes. Email us brewviewpod at gmail dot com. Uh, Twitter us at brewviewpod. Sounds dirty. Yeah. All right. And, and uh, I guess, I mean, if you were to tell me that we got. Anderson on a podcast, I would say, really?